Thanks guys, we're just rearranging some of the furniture up here. I'll um, roll this again just in case. Yeah, right. The wonders of modern technology that just don't work sometimes, do they? Okay, here we are at uh, Resurrection Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday, and uh, we spoke, um, uh, advertising this talk today, it was going to be about uh, uh, the idea that the resurrection changes everything. This changes everything, and uh, it truly, truly does. You know, you often do hear stories of how people have encountered some event that has changed them for the rest of their lives. Uh, the other day I was reading about Fred Hollows, I'm sure most of you here would have heard the name Fred Hollows. Um, uh, he's well known for treating underprivileged people all over the world for eye diseases and working in communities to try and raise the living standards in those uh, communities as well. But did you know that uh, this all came about when Fred Hollows made a visit to Northern Australia way, way, way back, probably 30 or 40 years ago? Uh, he visited an Aboriginal settlement and... Um, I didn't put that on, did I? That's better. He visited an Aboriginal settlement... And uh, he caught up with, uh, met two guys there who had these uh, really bad eye complaints. And him being an eye specialist at the time, thought this could be so easily fixed, so easily treated, if only um, someone would do that. Uh, That visit uh, with those two men to that uh, Aboriginal settlement in Northern Australia uh, changed the future of Fred Hollow's life uh, from that day on. He would then spend the rest of his days campaigning for poor communities, uh, for better eye health or better eye care, and also better living standards, and that's what we know him for uh, today. But sadly, Fred passed away uh, a few years ago. Some things that really do happen in life, and they change our perspective altogether. They really do change everything. And today, as we look at this uh, aspect here of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ, we will see that it absolutely changes everything. So if you've got your Bibles, um, please go to Romans chapter 6. We'll just read a short passage and then we'll uh, begin to talk from there. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through to 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Father, thank you today for uh, for this uh, passage in uh, Romans chapter 6. Thank you again, Lord, for uh, the truth that's contained here, uh, the death of Christ, uh, the death to sin, 
but also the resurrection to new life. Uh, Lord, we ask and pray now that your spirit would come and help us as we just uh, open this passage up and begin to think and reflect upon the resurrection of Jesus, that it would truly show us uh, this newness of life changes everything. Uh, We ask for your help now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, we are at Easter Sunday, better known as Christians as Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Resurrection Sunday is absolutely critical uh, for the Christian faith. Uh, Paul the Apostle says uh, elsewhere in Corinthians, if there's no resurrection, then we of all people are to be most pitied for following uh, something that was a lie. If the resurrection hasn't taken place, uh, we have wasted our time. We've actually followed a very cruel hoax if the resurrection hasn't taken our place and given our lives to that. Uh, The Apostle Paul had given his life away to the service of Jesus Christ gladly. And one of the key foundations that the Apostle Paul did that for was purely on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was why he was willing to give his life away gladly and do that. Another man called John Lennox, a mathematician and Christian apologist, says this about the resurrection. The Christian gospel is based squarely on a miracle. It was the resurrection of of Christ that started it going And that same miracle is its central message today. It really is one of the foundations here that the Christian faith stands upon. The empty tomb sends a loud and deafening message to the world. Jesus of Nazareth has risen from the grave. And that miracle changes everything. Everything. Let's set the scene though here for the followers of Jesus leading up to this where this miracle does take place. Before Jesus was crucified, his disciples had experienced a mysterious figure in Christ. Uh, Jesus came out of obscurity from a little-known town of Nazareth. It wasn't uh, like a major regional rural centre. It was just a little backwater of a town called Nazareth. He appears on the scene when he's roughly 30 years old, and he came preaching a message that the kingdom of heaven was here and that we must repent and believe. And he followed this message with doing uh, incredible, astounding, supernatural miracles. Uh, Jesus did things that no other person in history has ever done or would ever do in many senses of the word. Jesus uh, healed the sick. Jesus gave sight to the blind. Jesus gave hearing back to the deaf. Jesus walked on the water. Jesus raised the dead. He did things only that God could do. There was much talk at the time here about Jesus that he was the Jewish Messiah. They were awaiting for the Messiah, God's anointed King or Christ, to come. And they thought that Jesus was the long-awaited for King of the Jews. Except the concept that the Jewish community had back then of a Messiah was a conquering King who would then liberate Israel from its domination from the Roman Empire. So the whole concept here was some sort of conquering king who would actually liberate Israel from all this um, cruel domination and this sort of uh, nearly slave labour to the Roman Empire at that particular time. The followers of Jesus hoped that he was going to be some type of warrior king, some type of warrior king who would lead uh, the armies of Israel to rout and to destroy the Romans and rid them once and for all of this cruel domination. That's leading up to this point. But the crucifixion has taken place on Good Friday, only a few days earlier. Jesus is dead. His body is lying in a stone-cold tomb. This is not going according to the script as far as, as far as the Israelites were concerned at this time. This shouldn't have happened. Jesus shouldn't have died. The followers of Jesus are absolutely confused and bewildered. 
all of their expectations were something far different than a body lying in a tomb. Their aspirations and their hopes for a renewed Israel are shattered. The removal of the Roman Empire is nothing but a faded dream. The followers are in a daze and they can't believe it. They're lost. You see, the disciples didn't get what kingdom Jesus was talking about. They thought it was this physical, earthly kingdom that was going to come and take over. They thought Jesus would come in and set up an earthly kingdom to rule from Jerusalem and to dominate the world, to be uh, once again in the place of domination for the nation of Israel. For the followers of Jesus, at that particular time leading up to the death of Christ, they thought their biggest enemies were the Roman Empire. In their mind, that's the ones who actually had got us in cruelty and slavery. And that Jesus had come to defeat and destroy them. They didn't realise that Jesus was coming to set up a spiritual kingdom, not a physical earthly kingdom as such, a kingdom in our hearts. And they didn't realise that Jesus came to defeat sin and to destroy its power uh, at that time. They thought it was going to be a purely earthly kingdom. You see, Jesus' followers at that point in time still didn't realise that sin was their biggest enemy and not the Roman Empire. But then this single event comes along and it really does change everything. It changed everything for the followers of Jesus. The resurrection of Christ literally turned everything upside down and the followers of Jesus then discovered a whole new way of life when the resurrection had taken place. They were radically, radically changed. So one of the first revelations the disciples received or discovered in this spiritual kingdom of Christ was that sin was their biggest enemy. Sin was the biggest enemy for uh, individuals and humans back then, their biggest enemy and problem. They realised that their defiance of God is what has caused them all the dramas of life. It was their sin, their rebellion before him. They also knew at this point in time as well that sin would condemn them to hell for eternity because they've defied God and haven't followed him. And we see that just a little bit here picked up in those first couple of verses in our passage. It says in verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's picking up this here, this passage or this feature here of sin. Now, Bible is God's word to us and God has a lot to say about sin. Sometimes people say, look, do we have to talk about sin all the time? It feels so negative and so dour and so depressing. Well, that's our problem. That's the problem with the world. And the Bible talks lots about sin. And it's, the, it's in fact the whole purpose that Jesus came here was to deal with the sin problem, to deal with our sins and to save us from our sins. Isaiah 58 tells us that our sins have separated us from God. Not our sickness or loss of job or whatever broken relationship we may have been through. That hasn't separated us from God. It's our sin. It's this thing called sin that has separated us from the most loving and joyful being that has ever could possibly be in God. And this is what the followers of Jesus have discovered here as their biggest enemy and problem here as they begin to get a grasp of this resurrection. Sin is the actions, thoughts and words that flow from our heart that is contrary to the character of God. Sin is having anything else other than God as the central person in our lives. 
Sin is having anything else other than God as the central person in our lives. Some of sin's base foundations in our heart come from pride and selfishness, and sin gives birth out of that type of a heart. We allow the heart attitude of pride to raise us up as the number one person or the number one thing going around, and everybody else is a distant, distant second. We allow the heart attitude of selfishness to dominate our character so that we care all about ourselves first and last and in between and really nobody else rates on that scale. This is what pride and selfishness as a heart foundation do. You've only got to look at this this week with the Australian cricket team. What's taken place there? In a matter of seven days, uh, we've seen an absolute disaster. Three young, incredibly talented cricketers. And what's happened to them, they've allowed pride in their hearts to rule their decisions. All of a sudden, winning at all costs is the most important thing. So pride grips in and says, we're not going to be defeated. We want to be number one. We don't want to be beaten by anybody. We're not going to lose the series against South Africa and be the first team to lose it since South Africa has come back into international cricket over 30 or 40 years ago. We're not going to do that. They can't bear to lose. That would hurt their pride if that was to happen. So what do they do? They get together in the lunch break last Saturday in uh, Newlands in South Africa, uh, Cape Town in South Africa, and they hatch a plan. What about if we take some sandpaper out there and rough up the ball? That'll make sure the ball will really swing or be able to bowl all the South Africans out. Pride comes in and gives birth to this thing called sin. What are the results of that activity? I've watched the three press conferences over the last few days and there's some pretty broken, shattered guys there at the moment. Some of them probably have devastated their careers for the rest of their lives. They'll carry this baggage now for every waking, breathing moment of their life. They'll step back on a cricket field and that's all they'll think about and probably people will just actually remind them of that as well. It's part of what happens, unfortunately, in cricket. At the heart of the resurrection, which changed everything... For Jesus' disciples, they realised that sin was their biggest problem. So your biggest problem and my biggest problem is no different to the disciples back then. Sin is the drama. Jesus had come to defeat and destroy sin's power and its rule over our lives. Death kills sin. Death kills sin. You see at the cross that Jesus killed sin and its power. And that's what we celebrate or remember more so on Good Friday. It's the death that Jesus died to sin. Look in verse 3. It says it there for us. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Into his death. The death of Christ is central for us in our understanding in its killing power over sin, our biggest enemy. Have a look here in Colossians 2, 13, 15 where it tells us about that. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all us, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when Jesus died on the cross, he cancelled the record of sin that stood against us. Every single person has a record of sin. If a criminal goes to court, he'll have something to put down for all the laws he's broken and becomes a record. If he goes to jail, that record will be kept there when he's gone to jail. Jesus cancelled that record for us at the cross. He paid our fine. 
He wipes the record clean. For all of our breaking of God's law, Jesus has, brought, has wiped that clean by his being nailed to the cross and fully paying the debt of sin that we have owed. But there's more there. Look in verse 15. It says there, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Jesus has also broken sin's power in our lives as well. We no longer need to be enslaved to sin or allow it to dominate our thoughts through pride or through selfishness. That's what Good Friday is about. Not only paying the debt of sin, but also breaking its power in our lives so it no longer has control over us. We have control over it. And this is exactly what the resurrection declares as we think about what's taken place here in this um, life-changing event. The resurrection declares God's absolute acceptance of Jesus and his sacrificial death as full payment for our sin. When Jesus rises again, that's that's like God declaring, yes, you have made full payment for sin. I've accepted that payment. The debt has been cancelled. But not only that, when Jesus rises from the grave, God is also announcing that the full price of sin has been met, but its power now has been broken as well. Death has no hold over. Sin no longer has its power there. It declares that sin's power is broken so that we can now have control over that through the disarming of these powers that Satan may use with sin in our lives. He disarms the authorities and the rulers from, from, as it were, pushing sin's power and controlling us in that sense. How does that happen? How does that happen? Okay, Jesus does that in that sense, but how does that happen for us in the sense now that we have... um, power over sin. The Holy Spirit brings the truth of the gospel and makes it alive in our heart. At one stage, the gospel is just a mental argument. It's just a set of uh, facts or propositions or thoughts that are rolling around there. But then the Spirit, by His grace, unveils those facts and it's like they all become drop into order and actually, yeah, I can see what's happened. I can see. I believe this. This is what's happened. God has opened up my eyes to see this. The Spirit has revealed to me that Jesus has died for my sin. My debt has been paid. The Spirit reveals to me also that Jesus has been raised from the dead for my justification and my perfect position. I'm no longer guilty. The debt has been cancelled. The Spirit then fills my heart here with this glorious hope in Christ. I am free and I'm loved by Jesus. He takes these things and begins to unveil them into our hearts and into our minds. And the Holy Spirit does this to help us then to overpower sin because it's still within us in a broken form, still trying to get domination or trying to get rule over us. But God's Spirit takes those truths now and gives us the ability, as we reflect and meditate upon them, to now have power over sin as God's Spirit gives us this power through that truth. A new, deeper, higher love now in our heart for Jesus actually overpowers our love for sin as God's Spirit brings that alive to us. And one of the central truths that the God's Spirit uses to do this, to give us the power to overcome sin and take control of it instead of it controlling us, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It truly gives us now a new look and a new perspective on all things. As you and I see the resurrection of Jesus and become awakened to that, that Jesus is alive right now, ruling and reigning here in the greatest shepherding community. He's ruling and reigning in this world as much as we can't see that in the sense of the physical, but we know it by faith he is. As we begin to grasp those thoughts, God's Spirit brings that alive and builds a hope within us. And that hope 
changes everything. Not some things, it changes everything in our outlook upon life. It makes all things new and that's exactly what the resurrection does. Look here in verse 4 that Paul talks about here, the resurrection making all things new. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. New people where everything has changed. Everything has changed. Look at what the religious leaders say here about these disciples in Acts chapter 4, shortly after the resurrection of Christ. They say this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, uncommon men, they were astonished and they recognised that they had been with Jesus. It's an incredible statement here just to read what's happened here in the light of these disciples and now how they're being seen here by the religious uh, elite of that day. Uneducated and common men. That is how they're described there by the Pharisees. These guys are tradies. They're labourers, factory workers, they're hole diggers. They're just ordinary, run-of-the-mill, everyday men. Uneducated and common is how the Bible describes them there. And I might add to that, just a few days earlier, these guys were filled with fear. Filled with fear. They were... They were dead scared of the um, religious authorities coming and rounding up any sort of so-called followers of Jesus and actually doing away with them once and for all. They were absolutely filled with fear. These guys haven't been to a Bible college for three years to get some sort of theological training. They had a great three years with Jesus, mind you, which is probably better than the the theological college. But still, it says there they are just common, uneducated men. They're saying there's nothing special about these people at all. But look what's happened as we look at that verse. They're no longer fearful men afraid of people. They're actually totally changed and they're filled with boldness. They're filled with hope. Something's happened. How do the religious people react to them? It says there they are astonished by them. They're astonished by them. They're actually, we know who you guys are, but this is astonishing what has happened. Something has really, really changed. They are are dumbfounded and astounded by uh, the character of these people now. It's like they're saying, what has gotten into you guys? What has gotten into you guys? Why are you like this now? A few days ago, the Pharisees could have said, we could have just said a few words to you guys and you would have ran out of the town with your tail between your legs, absolutely scared of what we were going to do. But look at you now. You come and you stand in great boldness and profess Christ to us with conviction and power. What's gotten into you as uneducated and common men? I'll tell you what's got into them. God's Spirit has brought the resurrection of Jesus Christ absolutely alive in their hearts and it has totally changed these guys. Uneducated, common men. Now they're astounded uh, to the other people who are looking on to see how they're living their life. Their whole outlook and their whole perspective on life has totally changed. When they first met Jesus, it was all about a physical, earthly kingdom. Now mentality. We want to bring it on, Lord. Let's get this revolution underway. Let's go and kick butt. Let's get rid of the Romans. That's probably how they're thinking in some sense there. But now all they're thinking about is the spirit, this great revelation the Spirit's brought into the life of the resurrection of Jesus and it's changed everything. And they've got this incredible large picture this understanding of a a far bigger picture 
They've now got an eternal perspective here. It's far more than just the here and now of Roman domination. Their whole outlook of life is now to live for the glory and honour of Jesus Christ because they realise their hope lies in his resurrection, not in some sort of earthly kingdom establishing and getting rid of the Roman occupation. So they're now committed to not a revolution against the Roman Empire, but they're now committed to a revolution against sin and Satan. Absolutely changed these guys are. They're no longer now full of pride or selfishness. They now want to kill sin and see its power destroyed, not only in their lives, but many, many other people's lives. And Paul asks here the same question in verse 1 about this idea of sin still reigning. He says, will we still be controlled by sin even though we've died to it in Christ? It's got, to bro- it's got to be broken. And that's exactly the power that the resurrection does and what Jesus has done for us. It will, we will not be controlled by it any longer. We will control it. And to do this control, they will use the Spirit's power, uh, living their lives to reflect the glory of God as they think on the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So resurrected living looks like this. They build Christ-centered relationships now through marriage, families and friendships to show Jesus' glory. Instead of sin coming in to uh, change that agenda and to make them the dominating factor of pride and selfishness there, the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection totally changes these relationships with a whole new agenda. They now want to come into a marriage which is a revolution against sin so that marriage now reflects the resurrected life. It's how can I glorify God in this marriage? I don't want to build my relationships with other people here to see what advantage I can get out of them to serve my own purposes. The resurrection changes that altogether with a whole new agenda, with an eternal perspective. Friendships now are totally new with the resurrection. It's a revolution against sin now. And that revolution says, how can I serve you and how can I help you? How can I glorify God in this relationship with you? It's a whole new revolution. It's a whole new change. Life is totally, totally changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection allows you to lose in an earthly, physical sense in this world, knowing that all loss will pale into absolute insignificance in the next world. It allows you to lose. You can lose now knowing that you've really lost nothing. Because in Christ, you've got everything. It's a saying that we've said a few times. Uh, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything less Jesus equals nothing. So in the resurrection of Christ, we have everything. So you can afford to lose whatever you may have to lose in this world. And really, at the end of the day, you've lost nothing. Because Jesus is everything and the resurrection makes that true for us. It gives you and I an eternity filled with hope and joy and strength as we think about the resurrection because it brings all things into perspective. Look at Moses here in Hebrews chapter 11. He really gets it. Hebrews chapter 11, 24, 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So he's willing to lose something here. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's another glorious picture here of what the resurrection does. He's willing to lose. 
He's willing to walk away from that. Why is he able to do that? Because he's looking to the reward. And what's the reward? The, the, the reward is the resurrection of Jesus Christ to live eternally with Christ. This is what the truth of the resurrection does. This is resurrected living. It changes the way we look at everything completely. Completely. It's mysterious but it's, and it's supernatural, but this is what the Holy Spirit does when it realigns our thinking and realigns our um, perspective in our life. Let me just close here with this uh, great story that I read the other day. It's out of a book called uh, Jesus Freaks. I'd recommend to, uh, to get a copy of that book. Here's a story about uh, a lady called Nigella Sloboda from the USSR, so Russian communist days from the 1960s. And uh, she says this, You must come to my house tonight and listen to the radio with us, Nigella whispered to her neighbour. I've never heard anything like it before. A man is preaching God's word from the Bible. I don't know how it happened, but these broadcasts have changed my life. Nigella Sloboda was the first one in her village to be converted through gospel broadcasting in Russia from stations in neighbouring countries. Soon her love for God and her zealous witness brought others to Christ. Although she wasn't a pastor, she formed a church in her village. As time passed, this church grew so mightily that the police had to surround the village to keep people from the nearby collective farms from coming to hear the gospel message. For this, for this, Sister Sloboda was sentenced to four years of prison. Her five children were forcibly taken away to an atheistic boarding school. Her husband was left alone. In prison, Sister Sloboda told other prisoners about Christ. For this, she was confined in an unheated, isolated cell where she had to sleep on the cold, concrete floor without a mattress. Prisoners find it impossible to sleep in such conditions. Even the walls are too cold to lean against comfortably. Some report that that by standing with just their forehead touching the wall, they could manage to sleep enough to survive for just a few days. Yet, Sister Sloboda was kept in this cell for two months. Not only that, during the day she was put to hard labour with other prisoners. The communists expected that the lack of sleep combined with the hard labour would completely ruin her health and break her resolve to stand for her faith. Yet she never weakened. Everybody asked her, how can you endure it? She answered, I fall asleep on the cold concrete floor, trusting in God, and it becomes warm around me. I rest in the arms of God. And I thought about that. I thought, how could Nigella rest in the arms of God in that freezing cold prison cell? How could she live like that? She had a deep, deep, deep conviction of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it didn't matter what cost that God may lead her into, she could bear that because she had a hope eternal and that changed everything for her. That changed everything for her. I don't know what you're facing today. We all have challenges. We all have dramas. We all go through seasons of challenge and seasons of dramas and they can be high and they can be low. I don't know what you're facing but what I do know is this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It really, absolutely changes everything. It brings everything in perspective. And what it does, it brings transforming power 
keeping power, sustaining power and hope into our lives. I think about those three cricketers. I mean, shattered lives. The only true hope that those guys will have is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They might try and rebuild a patched life, but they want a fully rebuilt life with an absolute hope that will not be shaken. Steve Smith, Cameron Bancroft and David Warner need to hear about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. That hope, that resurrection transcends everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you today that we can come and uh, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you today that it truly does change everything. It changes everything, Lord. Everything begins to fall in perspective when we understand the resurrection. We could think of a Russian uh, who's defying the Communist Party and going to prison and surviving in a cold prison cell. And she does this, Lord, resting in your arms because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of the hope that lies within. We think of Moses, Lord, uh, refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh, turning away from the wealth of this world. How can he do that? He does that by his faith in you and the faith in the resurrection, that he will be united with you. He looked to the reward. Lord, today I pray for whatever anybody's facing in this uh, building today. Lord, I pray that they will look to the resurrection and see their faith renewed and their hope built, that it will give them the ability and the power to endure and go through whatever life is throwing at us at this time. And not only to do that, Lord, but to also glorify your holy and precious name. God, we are so glad of the resurrection. Please help us in our weakness in celebrating that, to grow in that and to really reflect what Christ has done for us. Lord, this we ask and pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.